Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. Baby loss is something we've talked about a lot on this podcast and something we've had some of the most positive feedback about. Because when you lose a baby, when the excitement, hopes and dreams for that new life are dashed, you often feel like you've unceremoniously been chucked out of the shiny new club you just got excited about joining. And you feel like you're the only one who is experiencing this. Feelings about having another baby differ hugely. Some women feel like the sooner they can get pregnant, the sooner their gaping wound of grief will heal. And others are terrified of the prospect of another loss. And because you've been bitten once by the lone predator of loss, how can you control your anxiety around it happening again? Well, joining me today, I've got Michelle Tolfrey, a clinical psychologist and mother to Orla, who was stillborn, and one-year-old Esme. She writes that, With the loss of Orla, I suddenly found myself to be the person needing support. I was isolated, vulnerable, and unsure how I would be able to cope. So I began to write. And what was born out of tragedy was Dear Orla, a blog that proved to be supremely helpful for other people navigating the unanticipated path of loss. Michelle, thank you so much for coming to join me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you also for being so generous and honest about your experiences. I know for me, when I experienced stillbirth myself, it was so inspiring to hear other people talk honestly about their experiences. It Mm -hmm. almost gave me, me permission to do so. And for me, that was a big part of the healing process and I think until you're in that situation you don't realize quite how powerful other people are so I know it's not easy to be honest and open and I know you also put yourself out to sort of criticism online Mm -hmm. but keep doing it it's an amazing (laughs) thing that you're doing I wanted to talk a bit about the the process of writing, the cathartic process of writing. Mm. I mean, I know that Dear Orla was initially a series of letters you wrote to Orla. Yeah, although, I mean, not, they they weren't ones that actually we shared on the blog. They're letters that my husband and I wrote. We wrote a letter every single day for the first year of her life, or what would have been her life even. And we've written intermittently since. But yeah, this idea that we found some kind of healing and a way of processing things through writing to her because she wasn't here to talk to or to to parent in the way that we'd hoped we would be. And there's something about writing words rather than saying them because they stay with you. Yeah, it's very, I, I sometimes go back and read those letters and it's quite painful sometimes because it really transports you back to that moment. You know, you, you can memory's a funny thing isn't it like you you can think that you remember things but actually when you go back and read something or maybe look at a photo you can really you can feel it you can really palpably feel how you felt in that moment and did you write together did you was it a process you did together kind of so we actually set up this private instagram account and we would write letters one day we'd alternate days so actually just the two of you was on this instagram yeah yeah Yeah. it still exists and yeah each day I would do one letter and then the next day Andy would write a letter. And I think what I found really helpful about that was there were times that I would then go in and just read his letters that he'd written that day. And it just gave me an insight into where he was at. 
it's really hard sometimes to to talk about these things. You sort of fall back into a way of coping day to day, and you know you kind of get on with the things you have to, like going to work or you know buying the shopping or you know doing those things that you do to survive. But you might not always talk about actually what am I thinking about and how am I feeling. So it was really good that we were able to communicate in that way. It's also really intense having a conversation with someone and sort of admitting, especially if the other person is grieving too. You yeah. you, you don't want to burden them necessarily with how you're feeling and so the idea of writing something that you may or may not read then or it might be later is obviously I mean it's a brilliant idea who had this idea I mean I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna claim it I think it was my idea I'm pretty sure it was I I woke up the next day we we come home from hospital the day that Ola was born and then the morning after I just remember looking over at the um the empty crib next to the bed and just thinking oh my like how on earth are we going to get through this and I, mean, I did use Instagram back then, but not massively. But I just thought, actually, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to set up this account. And there and then in bed, I just sat up and set it up, wrote my first letter, turned to Andy and said, have a look at this. What do you think? And literally from that moment, that's what, you know, it was kind of born from there. Because Orla was born after a normal pregnancy, yeah. no concerns about the pregnancy. No. So her stillbirth was a real shock I mean how aware of you were stillbirth were you I mean did it even cross your mind did not cross my mind like I I genuinely I just don't think it registered I don't think I really ever thought about it with you know had been sort of spoken to about it you know I think you know that babies die because you think well if they're born and they're unwell or something really terrible goes wrong during birth or or afterwards but I, I just never had this concept that you could get to full term in pregnancy, be absolutely healthy, and your baby die before labour even starts. I don't know, it just was so shocking to me. And I mean, for me, I'd not known anyone who'd had a stillbirth. No. So while I knew it happened, I thought it was so rare that I'd never mm, know anyone mm. who would experience it. And then when it happens to you, you just think, oh, I remember thinking, this must be a dream. Yeah this can't be real. Yeah, yeah, I had exactly the same. Literally. And I suppose then to some extent writing it, you know, I, for me it was really important saying those words, my baby was stillborn, my mm. baby died. That was a really important part of that adjustment, that realisation that this was yeah. my reality. And I suppose, yeah. you know, writing too is so cathartic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just kind of makes it real. But there's evidence that she existed as well, that she wasn't a dream, that although this felt like a terrible nightmare that was happening she did exist and she was real and then 11 months later you gave birth to Esme so two months after losing Orla you were pregnant again yeah I think it was about it was about three months I'm a very compliant person I think we were told don't try for 12 weeks or something and I I'm all I do as I'm told I'm that's just how I am and yeah so we waited and we were very very lucky that we fell pregnant that that very very quickly so the first year of grieving was very entangled with pregnancy after loss so it was a I mean I I can't kind of look back and think gosh did I dissociate for that time because it was such an overwhelming year yeah you kind of think gosh how did I survive and did you after Ola died did you immediately think I need to have another baby yeah did you just think "I, I can't even think twice about this this is absolutely what I need to do Yes, and no. I mean, I think I oscillated because there were moments, I remember when I was in labour with Orla, just kind of going, turning to Andy and saying, I just think this is a sign that I'm just not meant to be a mum. I'd lost and, a baby And just before. to clarify, this, you'd knew by this stage that Orla had died and yes, yeah, you, yeah. they'd induced your labour. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, induced labour knew that that. I mean, there's a bit of your brain that thinks maybe they've got it wrong. She's mm. going to come out crying. It'll be fine. But yeah, induced labour. We'd lost a baby before her. And I just, I don't know. I just felt like that, you know, I wasn't meant to be a mum. So maybe this was just my sign. And to be honest, if he, you know, I think if he'd said, yeah, I don't think I could go through this again. I think I would have, I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks I would have just said, no, we can't do this. But then there's this other bit that's just so... It's so primal. I think this hormonal and this animal instinct that I've got to this point and I need to be a mum and I need to be a mum that has a baby that I can take home and mother, not one that I got a mother through other means. I needed one that was in my arms. And it's so difficult because, you know, with you, you had two kind of crazy, unusual circumstances. Mm. You had an ectopic pregnancy, you had a stillbirth. Neither of them could be explained, which on the mm. one hand was bad because actually sometimes it's nice to know a reason. But on yeah. the other hand, you know, it's not like there was a big problem with you and people were saying there's a really high chance of this happening mm. again. I mean, presumably having had a stillbirth, your increase of having uh, increased risk of having a stillbirth is slightly more, but it's still tiny if yeah. they can't find a sort of specific reason. Yeah. No, exactly. And it's, I think that's it. That's, that's not, it's reassuring and it's not. Because if there was a cause, there might be a treatment. Yeah. But this was just like, well, you know, it's like thunder. It might, you know, not thunder, lightning. It'll, um, you know, not strike again. And when you first find out you're pregnant, did, I mean, what were those feelings? You know, usually when you find out you're pregnant, you're sort of a little bit fearful probably and, and, and yeah. quite excited. But obviously, you know, you were in the midst of the most raw part of your grief process. Mm, mm. What were your emotions around that? It was, oh gosh, it was, I remember we were away actually. We'd gone away for a few months to, Andy was cycling the length of America to when we were raising money, uh, fundraising. And I remember I'd convinced myself that it wasn't happening that month. I was just so, so convinced, no, my period's coming. And I was just devastated. I was in such, I was just in a really bad place. And you were devastated because you thought you weren't pregnant. Yeah, yeah. And I was just really, I think I'd had, I think I'd, someone had announced a pregnancy to me that weekend. And I was just feeling just so vulnerable. And then did the test. And it was just this really surreal, oh my goodness, I'm pregnant. And this, it's like, I don't know, it's a bit like, it was just very muted. This, I, you know, I kind of felt, I felt happy. I felt joy. I felt relief. But it was so, I felt like it was, the world was quite cotton wool-like. It was all very muted. And then suddenly had this wave of, oh my goodness, how how am I going to get through this? How am I going to keep this baby alive? How am I going to survive these next few months? It's very confusing, I would say. And what about your feelings around sort of Orla? I mean, was there any feeling that you were betraying her, that you were replacing her? I mean, we have such complex feelings that mm. are so often you know ridiculous when you look at them from a, a rational point yeah. of view but it's I think I think I had this range of emotions that wasn't an initial thought or feeling but I think as that pregnancy as Esme's pregnancy progressed I, I became quite anxious about what gender this baby was going to be and I think because we didn't find out the gender with with Orla and I was just like, I need to find out because I need to make sure that I can give this baby a, a separate identity because it was all happening so quickly. I was like, I just need to know that I'm not pretending that this is going to be, you know, Orla because it's not. This is a separate baby, a different baby. And uh, yeah, so we, we actually did find out the gender. So I gave myself some time to process 
and give this this baby its own personality and identity. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. And how supportive were the NHS? How supportive were they in your pregnancy and understanding of the emotional turmoil that you were experiencing? I mean, I was so lucky I had an incredible midwife. And that, I mean, that for me just made all the difference. Same midwife that I had with Orla. So she'd lived through everything with us. She was the first person, apart from Andy, first person I told that I was pregnant, you know, had her number, messaged her and was like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And she was my advocate all the way through. She was a, a case-holding midwife. So I saw her for every appointment. She came to my house and she was there for both births. And having someone who it's like she could preempt the next stage that I was going to find difficult so she would book appointments and she would book in like reassurance scans and CTG monitoring at the end of pregnancy so I felt like she was one step ahead so I mean I kind of think that she was she was a kind of core role I didn't have a lot of different treatment I guess I had I did see a consultant but it was I wasn't sort of I didn't feel like I had a very different package of care. In but you had that aspect. emotional support. Yeah. And the ca- presumably, so the case-loading midwife, she she started looking after you once you know that Orla was, was dead and so she looked after you during that labour or was she already she in the pregnancy? She was already midwife. I was oh, so wow. lucky. I know. Gosh, I mean, I was amazing. so lucky. I mean, the anxiety, I think, would be, for me, would be such a big thing because I think we all worry, don't we? Mm. We all worry exponentially. I mean, and that just increases once, once even when you are a parent. Mm. And if, you know, if something that was unexplained happens to you that's so tragic, say that no one can say it's not going to happen I again know. because they might say it's not, it's so rarely going to happen, but it did. So mm-hmm. it's really difficult to sort of trust people. Yeah. Were you, how did you control that anxiety? And were you terrified? I mean, I can just imagine I would have been absolutely terrified. Yeah, I was. I mean, I I can only sort of liken it to being on a cliff edge, that you are constantly treading this line of feeling so anxious that something terrible is about to happen. And you can almost see it because you've lived it already. And then, Did you envisage it? Did you envisage having another stillborn baby? Yeah, or, or yeah. that something else would happen. So mm. I, you know, for the first few weeks it was, oh, well, this is going to be a miscarriage or another ectopic pregnancy and then I'd lose my other tube. And then it was, you know, stillbirth. And then, you know, beyond then it's anything and everything. But everything became scary because I, I went back to work. But that was one of my coping strategies was to be busy, or busier than, than not being at work. And 
it was just everything was scary so even getting on the train I'd have these images flash into my mind of okay the train's going to suddenly stop and someone's going to fall on me and it's going to kill the baby and you know like everything became really scary so it's not just thinking that history is going to repeat itself it's that something the world is dangerous suddenly everything felt really really scary and that's a really normal thing to feel, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because your, your vision of the world, as you knew it, has completely shattered. When you have any kind of trauma, you know, that what you thought of the world is, the world's generally safe and, you know, yes, bad things happen, but it's rare. Once it's happened to you, how can you trust that something isn't going to happen again? So, yeah, the, it just all felt... I was just... I think I was just hypervigilant for nine months and beyond. And how do you manage that? How did you manage that in your pregnancy? Because there are obviously ways, quite effective ways of controlling anxiety. Yeah, and it's funny because obviously anxiety is something I've worked with for years as a psychologist. And I think there's a there's a degree of being able to kind of identify some of those thoughts and try and rationalise them. But actually, I found that sometimes that I almost felt like I was being kind of quite critical of my thoughts, like I shouldn't have those. And I think for me, a turning point was using more kind of mindfulness-based approaches to my anxiety. So I signed up and did the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course and really sort of practiced mindfulness, tried to do it kind of really actively every day so that I was just noticing when I was anxious and not judging those thoughts and just being, I think, just being really compassionate to myself, saying today you're feeling really anxious what do you need what do you need that's going to get you through the next hour the next afternoon the next day and actually sometimes that was just calling someone for reassurance or not going to work or clearing my diary so that I could actually just sit and notice the baby moving and I think for me that was a big turning point because it was almost like making friends with anxiety and kind of going, this is part of this process. It's a normal reaction to a very abnormal situation that you're in. You've just got to find a way to dance with it rather than wrestle it. Because when you wrestle it, it's getting more power. You need to sort of kind of go, okay, let's, I'm going to roll with this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to walk alongside you. I'm not going to try and fight you. Because anxiety is a really important thing that we feel. You know, it's yeah, yeah. kept us alive for Absolutely. you know in much more dangerous times. Yeah, can't lose anxiety. No. It's about managing it. How about Andy? Was I mean, he must have been really anxious too. I think he was, but he, I mean, he's a lot more laid back than me, and he I think is quite good at. He's just very good at I think keeping his emotions quite covered up mm-hmm. and. I have no doubt that underneath he was very anxious, but he, he, again, he's someone who keeps busy and throws himself into doing stuff. But certainly I think he, you know, I could see it in his eyes that there were times where I was like, I don't know if I can feel the baby moving, I need to go to hospital. And knowing that I could see like a kind of glimmer in his eyes that, oh gosh, I hope we're not, I hope this isn't happening again. And did you go to hospital a lot just to get checked out? I did. I mean, there were fewer times that I turned up in a kind of state of crisis. I can probably count those on one hand. But that was because my midwife booked in so many reassurance CTG scans and monitoring. So from, I can't remember, it was from like 32 weeks or something. I was at hospital three times a week being monitored. So I always knew I've just got a couple of days to get through. I'm almost at the next one. It's fine. I mean, there were times that I just was like... I need I need something now but I think already 
having those ones booked in made such a difference and obviously in that year of you know that that time when you were pregnant you would have had the anniversary of Ola's death yeah well that was actually after Esme was born that was after Esme was born yeah and and what about the time we'll talk about that in a minute but what about you know passing the mo the time the gestation that Ola was born I mean was that a relief to get past there or I think I was basically I got to that point about two days before my induction so we'd because at 37 weeks it's not it's not like if she if she'd passed earlier then then I would have kind of gone through that much sooner so there was there never felt like a safe point we agreed that I would be induced slightly later so that we didn't have exactly the same kind of induction time or gestation but I do remember on the day that I turned 37 weeks or that weekend because she died on a Sunday it was that Sunday that I completely kind of flipped out and I think I thought I was going to be okay I thought oh no I'll be fine I don't need to you know I won't need extra monitoring but yeah I did I needed to go up and have more reassurance but yeah because they were born they were both born at 37 plus two and so what was the birth like with Esme I mean it was incredible I I feel really lucky that I can say this but I feel like it was such an incredible experience I'd birth was such a thing that interested me so much in all this pregnancy I was fascinated by this whole process that you can get to this point where you've got this you know quite big baby in you and you somehow have to sort of get them out and that there are strategies that might help you to get through that so I did hypnobirthing I did loads of yoga and I felt I felt really proud of how Orla's birth went given that mentally I was just all over the place and physically it was very it's very hard to give birth to a baby that's already passed because you have to do all the work they can't do anything to help and I think I was quite I was nervous but kind of in some ways looking forward to Esme's birth because I just thought you know maybe I can have the birth that I really wanted with Orla and again we were induced but I was really lucky that actually we were just induced with pessaries and having my waters burst and had a you know vaginal birth just used a TENS machine and breathing and there were moments that were really funny and quite comical in in her birth with someone bringing my dinner in just as she was crowning and <laughs> I'm just like what on earth is going on here but actually it was yeah it was a it was something I look back on really fondly it was an amazing birth and to have her come out and cry was I feel really tearful thinking about it yeah you would I mean it's it's but you know confused emotions very, you know, that thing very, that you've been yeah wanting to hear and you know I think when most parents hear that that's just unadulterated joy yeah and yet when you've experienced loss and you've experienced the birth of a baby that didn't cry it's just they're just complicated apart. they really are and just I suppose it's little things like you know monitoring in labor and things like that that you just don't have when you know that you're going to have a baby who's died there's you know there's just little things that you just say okay I didn't have this last time this is really different yeah it was it was incredible do you think you bonded with Esme before she was born do you Um, think you dared to no I think not for a long time then we had the 20-week scan or maybe it was a one a little bit later and 
they discovered that she had a hole in her heart, which is, I think is very, very common, a small hole and could have closed up before birth anyway. And I think it was at that point where we'd, I knew something was wrong. I could see in the, in the sonographer's eyes and she made us wait to kind of go into another room. And it was sitting in that corridor in the chair waiting. I was like, oh my God, I love this baby and I don't want to lose them. And I think up until that point, I'd just been quite detached. And it was then I was like, no, the stakes are high here. And I really, I love this baby. And I really want to be able to take them home. So I think from that point, there was more bonding. But it's just different. It's not it's not the blissfully naive bonding that you have pre-loss. Mm. And the hole in her heart was okay it was fine she still had it at birth and she had an appointment i think when she's four weeks old and it's it was fine after that it's just you know another thing to navigate what you've written about a lot is that first year of of Mm. esme's life the idea which i think affects a lot of people that you finally have what you wanted the whole time and you it's like still life's not perfect because it's harder than you imagine and it's kind of more boring than you imagine and it's not filled with sort of light and perfection no and it's very difficult even when you haven't suffered loss to admit it's not all perfect the whole time but if you have if you finally got the baby you so desperately wanted and then to say god there are times when I kind of wish I didn't have this yeah it's a tough thing to admit it's really complex because I don't know, I think lots of other lost mums would say this, that once you lose a baby and you hear other people complaining about sleepless nights or, and you just like want to hiss in their face and go, like, you have no idea how lucky you are. I would never complain about this. I would never, it's better to you know, be up with a crying baby than to be up crying because your baby died. And then you sort of have bring a baby home and you kind of go, okay, this is really hard. This is, you know, there are moments that are so thankless and you just feel like you're on this kind of machine of, you know, treadmill of feed and change. And and also you're carrying this weight of grief and trauma. And I think it's just all those things on top of each other can make it very, very difficult yeah, I mean, I think every every month, it's always what I try and tell the girls on the bump class, like don't expect it to be perfect. Because I think especially we talked to lovely Izzy Judd about, you know, IVF and, mm. you know, we've got babies that are so longed for, you sort of don't dare to find it hard and no. you don't dare to admit that it's hard. But it's hard, it's just as hard, if not harder, if you've gone through yeah. a difficult time to get to that stage. Because, you yeah. know, for you, just being anxious for nine months and grieving... Yeah. That's just, it's like running a marathon before you run the marathon. Exactly, exactly. You just, you're depleted before you even bring this baby home. So you're exhausted and, but also you've not really allowed in your mind to sort of prepare for the fact that there's a baby that's going to need looking after and all those anxieties about bad things happening. I found that didn't go away. It just changed because mm. I now it was a baby that I suddenly had to keep alive outside of me and my goodness all these things that could go wrong it was it was so overwhelming and then I think there's too the idea that if you have another baby and it's well then that fixes everything you're suddenly magically cured from the yeah. grief that you had but I mean you were still grieving for Orla who mm. was as you said a different baby a different person yeah. a different part of your life and that mm. just can never go away nothing will fix that no no and I will be I mean, I'm infinitely grateful for Esme and the fact that she came when she did. And, you know, I I think that 
yes, I would be very different and things would be very different if she'd come at a different time. But yes, it's it doesn't take away from what you've been through. And it's just it's just complicated. Loss is complicated. Everyone's journey is so different and so individual because you arrive at your first pregnancy as a as an individual person with your own baggage. So of course, how you navigate pregnancy and birth and parenting is going to be unique to you. And especially if you then can't, don't feel that you can admit that you're still really sad. Yeah. You know, yeah. people look at you and say, well, you got what you wanted. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for me, because I felt, I felt really, really bad actually, and really struggled those first few months. And again, it was, I just kept coming up with the thought that I'd had when Orla died was, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be a parent. I am not cut out for this. The universe told me that I was going to be bad at this. And I am. I'm like, you know, I'm finding this really hard. I'm not enjoying it. I feel like she would be better off being looked after by someone else who would be better than me. Why didn't I listen to the universe? And the the mind is a is a wonderful thing. It will tell you things that aren't true. But yeah, I think it was it just made it very difficult to to enjoy things when I felt like I had no right to because I didn't feel good enough and did you open up to anyone about how you were feeling not for months it took me a long time because I just felt I don't know it's a weird one there's a lot of talk isn't there on online on social media and things it's great it talks about how difficult parenting is and I felt I don't I felt I guess quite confused I was like um, how I'm feeling is this the same as what other people are talking about you know this sort of like oh I don't know whether it's you know have off days and good days is this what it is because if if it is this is actually more miserable than people are letting on or is this more and I found that really hard to tease apart and you know as a psychologist it's you know I kind of thought gosh if I'm struggling to tease this apart how are other people who are really struggling getting on with this because I don't know if this is normal or not I don't know if this is in inverted commas normal motherhood or if this is something different and different you know different enough that I need help and did you go and have some help in the end I did in the end it took six months and it just got to a point where I just felt this is not this isn't normal I you know I surely I should have days where I don't feel like I'm walking through treacle and I feel so anxious all the time you know I think the the, the GPs sort of thought maybe postnatal depression I wouldn't disagree with that but I think it was also anxiety and grief and trauma and you know I don't think it fits under one umbrella you know one term I think it's more of an umbrella thing but yeah I went to the GP and said this is how I'm feeling and then started going off on one about oh but you know I might not meet criteria for that service because you know I'm getting up every day and I'm going out and so I can't be that bad and there's probably people worse off who need that service and she was just a bit like look this is not your decision to make don't worry trying to self-diagnose yeah yeah Um, and also just rationalize it and kind of go I'm not I'm not worthy of of this help I'm not bad enough and I suppose when you've worked in mental health for a long time and you see such a huge spectrum you kind of forget that that it is a spectrum and that actually everyone deserves help 
Well, medical professionals are notoriously bad at, you know, diagnosing themselves because it's very difficult to do. You can't live in your own head and look at it objectively. You know, I even see the, you know, with my sister, who's a GP, the way that she sort of treats her children medically is totally different. And it's only because she's emotionally invested in them. And she has a very different relationship than she does with her patients. I mean, she adores her patients. But when you're a mother to that child, it's much more difficult Mm, to see, mm. you know, from a slightly detached point of view. And I presume that's the same with you yeah. and then you know the fact is that you, you know it, it, it's a it's a mental health consideration so are you in the right space to yeah. be treating anyone let alone yourself at yeah, this yeah. stage no absolutely so it was yeah you need someone else to have an objective view on it but also like self-help is great and I think you know we all should be doing sort of some kind of self-care and self-help but ultimately we all need someone else and that might be that you have it in your family or you know a really good strong network of friends or but actually sometimes you need someone who's completely outside of that who can say actually no there is more going on and you're you know you can come here and talk really openly and whatever you say is okay mm. Esme is nearly two now. Two, yeah. Nearly two. Have you started talking to her about the fact that she has an older sister? Yes and no. It's it's a funny one. We because we have photos up and we've got all those ashes at home, so we do sort of reference another baby and we'll sort of point things out. I think it's probably only now that I could maybe grasp that she might understand some of it because she can name her friends for example from childcare now and it's when she starts doing that so I think okay and she can name all of our family members and I just think okay well now now maybe it's time to start really talking to her so that she may understand that she has a sister but I think it's that sort of gently gently approach and you know not hiding anything but not also pushing too much that I don't want to confuse her Mm. it's that she will grow to understand over time and it'll be it's it's a complex thing to I think to to describe to anyone about well you've got a sibling and but they're not here and I think the language that we use we'll have to think quite carefully about as well Mm. I think for me what obviously I had two older children when when Willem was stillborn and one thing that I'm really proud of having done is that he's in the sort of narrative of our everyday conversation it's not like he's only mentioned on birthdays or when I'm really sad and accompanied by tears it's almost like we've talked about him so much that he's part of our normal conversation and and that makes him feel more present than if he was the sort of unspoken and weirdly I went to see a doctor the other day and I had to fill in a sort of uh, form and I was with one of my children and I said, you know, they said, how many children do you have? And I said, I had two and then a a stillbirth. And she said, it was only when my daughter was out of the room, she said, oh, I didn't want to mention this in front of your daughter. And I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, yeah, you could absolutely, the whole family are really happy talking about this. And it probably wasn't something I would have anticipated before I'd experienced stillbirth myself, but I'm really glad we did that Mm. because... I think was also taught my children that it's okay to talk about sad things and death yeah. and people who've died and you know I'm sure from a professional stance you'll agree with me that the yeah. more we, we talk about and normalize the, what is normal in life the better we are at addressing it yeah. and addressing our emotions around it which might well change person to person yeah but yeah, also yeah. might change as our lives progress and it might well be that Iona's really you know sad or Ludo's really sad maybe when he becomes a father because he remembers yeah you know the his his little brother not surviving so 
but I know that he will feel fine to come and talk about it with yeah. me because it's it's been part of our conversation. Absolutely. I think it's, and often just following their lead is, is really important because children have a, an amazing way of understanding things and putting it into their own words and you know, sort of coming up with their own sometimes magical kind of explanations for things. And I think it's it's important to allow them to develop their kind of narrative around it as well. It's part of their discovery of what it is to to be alive and then to not be there anymore. And so it's often you learn that initially with pets and things. It's Mm. difficult when it's a sibling and maybe a sibling that you've never met who came before you. But yeah, we sort of, I think we sort sort of gently making sure I mean Ulla is all around our house she's everywhere I mean I obviously made the decision not to have another baby after Willem died and I was really conflicted I remember waking up on the operating table thinking there's no way I'm going Mm. through this again and then after a couple of months I thought I must have another baby I, I want three children and I remember also thinking like it was such a tragedy and people felt so sorry for me but if I had another baby it would be like this kind of happy ending yeah and it would cure it and and I remember speaking to uh, my therapist about it and she said Marina you know having another baby is not going to guarantee that that is a happy ending no. for you the only person that will influence that is you and you know actually having another baby could be an even worse ending because of the the risks and yeah. Anyway, for many reasons, including the fact that I had two healthy children and it was going to be very risky for me to have another baby, we made the difficult decision not to have another baby. But every day I sort of try and think, well, I've got two healthy children. Mm, I've got mm. nieces and nephews who I'm a big part of their life. And this house that we're recording in now is constantly full of kids. And I'm so grateful for all of that. But part of it was that I was scared. Mm. I was scared to go through a pregnancy where every single twinge in my tummy, was that just, I had a bit of wind or was that I was having another placental abruption? And I just thought the impact that would have on me, on my children, my husband, so I wasn't as brave as, as you but if someone's listening to this thinking I don't know if I can do this you know what what would you say to them what surprised you about I mean did you ever think I can't just do another pregnancy or were you just pregnant before you thought about it too I think much that, I think for me that that was the issue that it was just so soon that there wasn't really rational thoughts it was just this instinctive well that's it we're going to try for another one and it happened very quickly we were very lucky so there wasn't thinking until then I had to think about, oh my goodness, how am I going to get through these next nine months? I think everyone's so unique because, you know, people will have to consider different things because some people already have children and some don't. And there's always weighing up, yeah, what's the impact going to be? I think also, you know, the the health implications because some people may have an explanation, some people don't. Sometimes you need to wait months for test results. So I think everyone needs to sort of make their own decision and and feel that they have the right to make the decision that's right for them but also that you're not alone in in making that so talking to people either other people who've gone through it or professionals you know speaking to a therapist speaking to bereavement midwives and medical consultants and whoever it is that you can speak to to help you make an informed decision because I think making a decision based on your emotions you know it, it's it's very lonely and it's a very kind of scary place to be and there there are resources out there I think the trouble is they're very hard to find and I think that's what I find really it makes me feel really sad that if you don't know where to find that support you might not know you might not have someone to talk about these things to 
Yeah, but you should you should try and find because it, yeah. it is theoretically available. If you've had a, a, a loss beforehand, I mean, theoretically you should. It's about asking those questions. But a lot of people don't realise that that is a service that is available. I think, I mean, because there's not like one set service. Mm. I think that's the problem. So, you know, there's lots of amazing charities and organisations that offer free counselling mm-hmm. you know some people will go to their bereavement midwife if there is one available in their hospital you know it's I think that's the trouble sort of you know I'd love to be able to say this is where you should go but actually it's going to be different depending on where you live mm-hmm. and I think this is the travesty of healthcare that it is often a postcode lottery mm-hmm. I mean there's great organizations like Tommy's and Sands and you know, other charities that do help people to think these things through but ultimately, it's just so individual. Mm. It's really hard to give specific advice. And I suppose, you know, having, you know, the knowledge that hopefully you'll be able to find someone not only to help you make that decision, but if you do decide to go through another pregnancy to support you in that pregnancy yeah. and that sort of seeing someone and talking to them and being able to manage, you know, you talked about how you managed your anxiety. Yeah. Uh, that actually these tools can be really, really helpful. I remember speaking yeah. to a hypnotherapist actually and she said, you know, part of what I do is, you know, speaking to people who've experienced loss and teaching them little techniques to help with the anxiety and we're very very different it's not like there's one size fits all but you know those things are often incredibly helpful and also the understanding that you know generally and I know again care across the NHS differs hugely but if you have experienced a stillbirth or or a loss late on in pregnancy they usually are pretty good at caseloading you and making sure that you will have that continuity of care and it's not it's they try and help with the burden they try and provide someone that you can talk to that yeah. can reassure you they give you more scans obviously absolutely yeah. and they are understanding aren't they they are and I think but I think also that you if you don't have someone who is advocating for you sometimes you, you need to be your own advocate which is really hard when you're feeling very vulnerable I would say to anyone if you know if you're thinking about having another pregnancy or you are pregnant again try to get a case loading midwife if that exists in your local area because just like you say continuity of care is just like that just makes all the difference you're well, not, not having to explain exactly every time exactly. that you had a stillbirth yeah and exactly being asked sort of insensitive questions I know and like you know people there's I I, I don't like labeling people as good or bad clinicians I think you know everyone's working under a lot of pressure in the NHS but I think you know some people are just have the language they're just very good at managing this stuff and some people are less less good at that so finding those people that you're like okay I trust them and I want to see them and doing as much as you can to kind of get that because you deserve it and ultimately I mean I could go off on a big rant here about cost effectiveness but if you get the right care early on, it does make a massive difference. And I think it sets you up in a way that, it, you know, sets you up in a good way for those early days and weeks of motherhood, which are hard anyway. <laughs> on your website, you have little stickers for your maternity notes, uh, yes. which basically is saying that you are pregnant after a loss. Actually, the ones that I've done, because you can get the pregnancy ones. For me, it was it was after that. So we did the I'm parenting after loss stickers because I found going oh gosh this is bringing back memories up going to like weigh-in clinics with the health visitor and I would see someone different every time and and it was giving over that red book and people saying oh is she your first and thinking oh why 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 I feel really vulnerable here I'm a new mum I feel like everyone's staring at me trying to undress my screaming baby to put her on the scales and I really don't want that extra stress of having to explain again no a year ago 
my first baby died and that's why I'm probably feeling a little bit more stressed than than maybe I would have done otherwise Mm. because there's also that sort of very often that question is chit chat you know it's not that they need to know it's chit chat oh aren't you having a nice day and then you feel like you're delivering the worst news and you're ruining everyone's day yeah (laughs) and you just you know that just makes your day even worse yeah 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 yeah, it's tough that that question, you know, how many children do you have is a is a difficult one and I find myself sometimes I'm honest and sometimes I say I have should have had 3. Yeah. I had 3, but I only have 2 now. But also some days I just find myself saying I've got two children and not just not feeling brave enough to have that conversation and sometimes I think you have to be pragmatic and You do. And I think you just have to be kind to yourself that doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that you're forgetting your child by not saying that like I just always think does this person deserve that piece of my heart because every I feel like every time I talk about all or I am opening my heart and giving a little bit of it away and some people I feel can manage that and and, and can can treat that bit of my heart with tenderness and if I don't feel that they can do that then I'm not I'm not going to take that risk. Mm. And I feel okay about that. Mm. I don't, you know, I might go away and in my head I have a little chat with Orla and say, they just didn't deserve to hear about you. And because you're just too precious for me to to share you. Well, I think that is a wonderful way to think about it, whether or not they deserve a piece of your heart. That's great. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. I feel so proud to be part of what I think is a very brave and important conversation. Um, And I guarantee we will have comforted and helped people who will be listening to this. Dear Orla blog has changed. It's now from the other chair. From the other chair. So, yeah, that's changed Last year, it was kind of a, it was a difficult decision because again, it's this sort of like, actually, I felt like I was letting go a bit of, of all of it. But I guess as time went on and I had some therapy, I've had quite a bit of therapy now after, after Esme was born. And I just felt that it, I don't know, like where I was at with my writing had changed and being someone who's now sat in both chairs as a therapist and psychologist and as someone who has been in therapy, that was where that's where I felt like I was coming from with my writing and again sort of had lots of chats with all her in my in my mind about it doesn't mean that that I've forgotten her that I've moved on in any way it's just that you know she's given me the strength and bravery to talk about other things and make some very big decisions and changes in my life and I feel very grateful to her for that Mm. And the blog is is obviously a collection of your writing, but also other people sharing their stories. Yeah, yeah. So using the whole concept of letters as well, sort of writing letters to either an aspect of them or a mental health difficulty or someone else, you know, a health professional or whoever that may be, writing a therapeutic letter to that person who's in the other chair or that part of them in the other chair. I have to say, it's taken a bit of a backseat at the moment, but I'm kind of I've got some letters coming up that I'm going to be sharing. Well, and the reason it's taken a backseat is because you're working again. I am, yes. Yeah, I went back to work last year, actually almost a year ago in the NHS and made the decision at the end of last year that I... I was going to leave, which is a very big one after 15 years. That's a tough... a process, I would say, that's been full of tears and angst. But it goes back to what I was saying about I feel that Orla and Esme actually have, have given me the the strength and the bravery to make decisions that actually fit for me and my family. So you're practising privately uh, um, so people can come and see you if they yep. want to chat. I mean, do you specialise in grief and... 
No, I mean, I, I, I've sort of stuck with what I know from what I've been doing for years. I, so I specialise in working with adults. So I work with just, you know, as psychologists, we're quite quite handy that we're trained in a whole range of different models and for helping lots of different difficulties. So whilst grief and bereavement have been things that I've worked with in the past, it's not something I'm specialising in. I just specialise in, I like to think I just specialise in people. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in people and their unique stories and you know their unique difficulties so yeah that's what I I work with if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way of getting in touch and just learning a bit more about what you do so I mean you can have a look on the blog which is from the other chair and my new I don't know what to call it kind of venture I'll call it a venture because it's although it's private adventure adventure yeah absolutely (laughs) it's a private practice but actually part of this is that we're going to be offering um we're a social enterprise so we are going to be offering free support so some interventions some kind of just support groups to people who need it and focusing actually on people who've gone through loss so whilst my therapeutic work is with anyone actually some of the support that we're giving for free is going to focus more on people who've been through loss and this adventure venture is called um talking heads so it's talkingheads.org.uk yeah and then that's launching now so it's very exciting fantastic well thank you michelle thanks so much for coming along thank to you chat. for having me it's really nice to talk about something that i'm sure there's lots of people out there who are sort of either about to tread this line or already are thank you all for listening to another episode of the parenthood i had a comment on instagram this week which made me so happy she said you take all these taboos and make them seem so normal and i hope that's what we've continued uh, to do in that vein today the loss of a child is never easy to talk about but god it's important Uh, (laughs) please don't forget to subscribe rate and review us you can also get in touch with me let us know what you want to hear about next on my instagram i'm marina.fogel but in the meantime from michelle and me thank you for listening and goodbye